Chapter 13 of The Double, a Petersburg poem by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 It seemed as though the weather meant to change for the better. The snow, which had been till then coming down in regular clouds, began growing less and less, and at last almost ceased. The sky became visible, and here and there tiny stars sparkled in it. It was only wet, muddy, damp, and stifling, especially for Mr. Golyadkin, who could hardly breathe as it was. His greatcoat, soaked and heavy with wet, sent a sort of unpleasant warm dampness all through him, and weighed down his exhausted legs. A feverish shiver sent up sharp, shooting pains all over him. He was in a painful cold sweat of exhaustion, so much so that Mr. Golyadkin even forgot to repeat at every suitable occasion with his characteristic firmness and resolution, his favorite phrase, that it all may be, most likely, indeed, might turn out for the best. But all this does not matter for the time, our hero repeated, still staunch and not downhearted, wiping from his face the cold drops that streamed in all directions from the brim of his round hat, which was so soaked that it could hold no more water. Adding that all this was nothing so far, our hero tried to sit on a rather thick clump of wood, which was lying near a heap of logs in Osufia Ivanovitch's yard. Of course, it was no good thinking of Spanish serenades or silken ladders, but it was quite necessary to think of a modest corner, snug and private, if not altogether warm. He felt greatly tempted, we may mention in passing, by that corner in the back entry of Osufia Ivanovitch's flat, in which he had once, almost at the beginning of this true story, stood for two hours between a cupboard and an old screen among all sorts of domestic odds and ends and useless litter. The fact is that Mr. Golyadkin had been standing waiting for two whole hours on this occasion in Osufi Ivanovitch's yard, but in regard to that modest and snug little corner there were certain drawbacks which had not existed before. The first drawback was the fact that it was probably now a marked place, and that certain precautionary measures had been taken in regard to it since that scandal at Olsufi Ivanovitch's last ball. Secondly, he had to wait for a signal from Clara Olsufina, for there was bound to be some such signal. It was always a feature in such cases, and it didn't begin with us, and it won't end with us. At this point, Mr. Golyadkin very appropriately remembered a novel he had read long ago in which the heroine, in precisely similar circumstances, signaled to Alfred by tying a pink ribbon to her window. But now, at night, in the climate of Petersburg, famous for its dampness and unreliability, a pink ribbon was hardly appropriate, and, in fact, was utterly out of the question. No, it's not a matter of silk ladders, thought our hero and I had better stay here quietly and comfortably. I had better stand here. And he selected a place in the yard exactly opposite the window, near a stack of firewood. Of course, many persons, grooms and coachmen, were continually crossing the yard, and there was, besides, the rumbling of wheels and the snorting of horses and so on. Yet it was a convenient place, whether he was observed or not. But now, anyway, there was an advantage of being to some extent in shadow, and no one could see Mr. Golyadkin while he himself could see everything. The windows were brightly lit up. There was some sort of ceremonious party at Olsufi Ivanovitch's, but he could hear no music as yet. So it's not a ball, but a party of some other sort, thought our hero, somewhat aghast. Is it today? floated the doubt through him. Have I made a mistake in the date? Perhaps anything is possible. 
yes to be sure anything is possible perhaps she wrote a letter to me yesterday and it didn't reach me and perhaps it did not reach me because petrushka put in his spoke the rascal or it was to-morrow in the letter that is that i should do everything to-morrow that is wait with a carriage at this point our hero turned cold all over and felt in his pocket for the letter to make sure but to his surprise the letter was not in his pocket how's this muttered mr golyadkin more dead than alive where did i leave it then i must have lost it that is the last straw he moaned at last oh if it falls into evil hands perhaps it has already good lord what may it not lead to it may lead to something such that ah my miserable fate at this point mr golyadkin began trembling like a leaf at the thought that perhaps his vicious twin had thrown the greatcoat at him with the object of stealing the letter of which he had somehow got an inkling from mr golyadkin's enemies what's more he's stealing it thought our hero as evidence but why evidence after the first shock of horror the blood rushed to mr golyadkin's head moaning and gnashing his teeth he clutched his burning head sank back on his block of wood and relapsed into brooding but he could form no coherent thoughts figures kept flitting through his brain incidents came back to his memory now vaguely now distinctly the tunes of some foolish songs kept ringing in his ears he was in great distress unnatural distress my god my god our hero thought recovering himself a little and suppressing a muffled sob give me fortitude in the immensity of my afflictions that i am done for utterly destroyed of that there can be no doubt and that's all in the natural order of things since it cannot be otherwise to begin with i've lost my birth i've certainly lost it i must have lost it well supposing things are set right somehow supposing i have money enough to begin with i must have another lodging furniture of some sort in the first place i shan't have petrushka i can get on without the rascal somehow with the help of people of the house well that will be all right i can go in and out when i like and petrushka won't grumble at my coming in late yes that is so that's why it's a good thing to have people in the house well supposing that's all right but all that's nothing to do with it and all that's nothing to do with it at this point the thought of the real position again dawned upon mr golyadkin's memory he looked round oh lord have mercy on me have mercy on me what am i talking about he thought growing utterly desperate and clutching his burning head in his hands won't you soon be going sir a voice pronounced above mr golyadkin our hero started before him stood his cabman who was also drenched through and shivering growing impatient and having nothing to do he thought fit to take a look at mr golyadkin behind the woodstack i am all right my friend i'm coming soon soon very soon you wait the cabman walked away grumbling to himself what is he grumbling about mr golyadkin wondered through his tears why i have hired him for the evening why i am within my rights now that's so i've hired him for the evening and that's the end of it if one stands still it's just the same that's for me to decide i am free to drive on or not to drive on and my staying here by the woodstack has nothing to do with the case and don't dare to say anything think the gentleman wants to stand behind the woodstack and so he's standing behind it and he's not disgracing anyone's honour that's the fact of the matter i tell you what it is madame if you care to know nowadays madame nobody lives in a hut or anything of that sort no indeed and in our industrial age there's no getting on without morality a fact of which you are a fatal example madame you say 
we must get a job as a register clerk and live in a hut on the seashore. In the first place, madame, there are no register clerks on the seashore. And in the second place, we can't get a job as a register clerk, for supposing, for example, I send in a petition, present myself, saying a register's clerk's place or something of that sort, and defend me from my enemy. They'll tell you, madame, they'll say, to be sure, we've lots of register clerks, and here you are not at madame Falbalas, where you learn the rules of good behavior, of which you are such a fatal example. Good behavior, madame, means staying at home, honoring your father, and not thinking about suitors prematurely. Suitors will come in good time, madame, that's so. Of course, you are bound to have some accomplishments, such as playing the piano sometimes, speaking French, history, geography, scripture, and arithmetic. That's the truth of it. And that's all you need. Cooking, too. Cooking, certainly, forms part of the education of a well-behaved girl. But as it is, in the first place, my fine lady, they won't let you. They'll raise a hue and cry after you, and then they'll lock you up in a nunnery. How will it be then, madame? What will you have me do then? Would you have me, madame, follow the example of some stupid novels and melt into tears on a neighboring hillock, gazing at the cold walls of your prison house, and finally die following the example of some wretched German poets and novelists? Is that it, madame? But, to begin with, allow me to tell you, as a friend, that things are not done like that, and in the second place I would have given you and your parents, too, a good thrashing for letting you read French books. For French books teach you no good. There's a poison in them, a pernicious poison, madame. Or do you imagine, allow me to ask you, or do you imagine that we shall elope with impunity or something of that sort, that we shall have a hut on the shore of the sea and so on, and that we shall begin billing and cooing and talking about our feelings and so that we shall spend our lives in happiness and content? Then there would be the little ones. So then we shall shall go to our father, the civil counselor, Sufi Ivanovich, and say, We've got a little one, and so on. On this propitious occasion, remove your curse, and bless the couple. No, madame, I tell you again, that's not the way to do things, and for the first thing, there'll be no billing and cooing. Please don't reckon on it. Nowadays, ma'am, the husband is a master, and a good, well-brought-up wife should try and please him in every way. And endearments, madame, are not in favor nowadays in our industrial age. The day of Jean-Jacques Rousseau is over. The husband comes home, for instance, hungry from the office, and asks, Isn't there something to eat, my love? A drop of vodka to drink, a bit of salt fish to eat? So then, madame, you must have the vodka and the herring ready. Your husband will eat it with relish, and he won't so much as look at you. He'll only say, Run into the kitchen, kitten, he'll say, and look after the dinner. And at most, once a week, he'll kiss you, even then rather indifferently. That's how it will be with us, my young lady. Yes, even then, indifferently. That's how it will be, if one considers it, if it has come to one's looking at the thing in that way. And how do I come in? Why have you mixed me up in your caprices? The nobleman who is suffering for your sake and will be dear to your heart forever, and so on. But in the first place, madame... I am not suited to you. You know yourself I'm not a great hand at compliments. I'm not fond of uttering perfumed trifles for the ladies. I'm not fond of lady killers, and I must own I've never been a beauty to look at. You won't find any swagger or false shame in me. I tell you so now in all sincerity. That's the fact of the matter. We can boast of nothing but a straightforward, open character and common sense. We have nothing to do with intrigues. I am not one to intrigue, I say so, and I'm proud of it. That's the fact of the matter. 
I wear no mask among straightforward people, and to tell you the whole truth. Suddenly Mr. Goliadkin started. The red and perfectly sopping beard of the cabman appeared round the woodstack again. I am coming directly, my friend. I'm coming at once, you know, Mr. Goliadkin responded in a trembling and failing voice. The cabman scratched his head, then stroked his beard and moved a step forward, stood still and looked suspiciously at Mr. Goliadkin. I am coming directly, my friend. You see, my friend. I, just a little, you see, only a second. More. Here, you see, my friend. Aren't you coming at all? the cabman asked at last, definitely coming up to Mr. Goliadkin. No, my friend, I'm coming directly. I am waiting, you see, my friend. So I see. You see, my friend, I... What part of this country do you come from, my friend? We are under a master. And have you a good master? All right. Yes, my friend, you stay here, my friend, you see. Have you been in Petersburg long, my friend? It's a year since I came. And are you getting on all right, my friend? Middling. To be sure, my friend, to be sure. You must thank Providence, my friend. You must look out for straightforward people. Straightforward people are none too common nowadays, my friend. He would give you a washing, food, and drink, my good fellow. A good man would. But sometimes you see tears shed for the sake of gold, my friend. You see a lamentable example. That's the fact of the matter, my friend. The cabman seemed to feel sorry for Mr. Goliadkin. Well, your honor, I'll wait. Will your honor be waiting long? No, my friend, no. I, you know, I won't wait any longer, my good man. What do you think, my friend? I rely upon you. I won't stay any longer. Aren't you going at all? No, my friend, no. I'll reward you, my friend. That's the fact of the matter. How much ought I to give you, my dear fellow? What you hired me for, please, sir. I've been waiting here a long time. Don't be hard on a man, sir. Well, here, my good man, here. At this point, Mr. Goliadkin gave six whole roubles to the cabmen, and made up his mind in earnest to waste no more time, that is to clear off straight away, especially as the cabman was dismissed and everything was over, and so it was useless to wait longer. He rushed out of the yard, went out of the gate, turned to the left, and without looking round to his heels, breathless and rejoicing. Perhaps it will all be for the best, he thought, and perhaps in this way I've run away from trouble. Mr. Goliadkin suddenly became all at once light-hearted. Oh, if only it could turn out for the best, thought our hero, though he put little faith in his own words. I know what I'll do, he thought. No, I know I'd better try the other tack, or wouldn't it be better to do this? In this way, hesitating and seeking for the solution of his doubts, our hero ran to Semyonovsky Bridge, but while running to Semyonovsky Bridge, he very rationally and conclusively decided to return. It will be better so, he thought. I had better try the other tack. That is, I will just go. I'll look on simply as an outsider, and that will be the end of it. I am simply an onlooker, an outsider, and nothing more. Whatever happens, it's not my fault. That's the fact of the matter. That's how it shall be now. Deciding to return, our hero actually did return. The more readily, because with his happy thought, he conceived of himself now as quite an outsider. It's the best thing. One's not responsible for anything, and one will see all that's necessary. That's the fact of the matter. It was a safe plan, and that settled it. Reassured, he crept back under the peaceful shelter of his soothing and protecting woodstack, and began gazing intently at the window. This time, he was not destined to gaze and wait for long. Suddenly, a strange commotion became apparent at all the windows, 
Figures appeared, curtains were drawn back, whole groups of people were crowding to the windows at old Sufi Ivanovitch's flat. All were peeping out, looking for something in the yard. From the security of his wood stack, our hero, too, began with curiosity, watching the general commotion, and with interest, leaned forward to right and to left so far as he could within the shadow of the wood stack. Suddenly he started, held his breath, and almost sat down with horror. It seemed to him, in short, he realized that they were looking for nothing, for nobody, but him, Mr. Golyadkin. Everyone was looking in his direction. It was impossible to escape. They saw him. In a flutter, Mr. Golyadkin huddled as closely as he could to the woodstack, and only then noticed that the treacherous shadow had betrayed him, that it did not cover him completely. Our hero would have been delighted at that moment to creep into a mouse hole in the woodstack and there meekly to remain, if only it had been possible. But it was absolutely impossible. In his agony, he began at last staring openly and boldly at the windows. It was the best thing to do, and suddenly he glowed with shame. He had been fully discovered. Everyone was staring at him at once. They were all waving their hands. All were nodding their heads at him. All were calling to him. Then several windows creaked as they opened, several voices shouting something to him at once. I wonder why they don't whip these naughty girls as children, our hero muttered to himself, losing his head completely. Suddenly there ran down the steps he, we know who, without his hat or greatcoat, breathless, rubbing his hands, wriggling, capering, perfidiously displaying intense joy at seeing Mr. Golyadkin. Yakov Petrovitch whispered this individual, so notorious for his worthlessness. Yakov Petrovitch, are you here? You'll catch cold. It's chilly here, Yakov Petrovitch. Come indoors. Yakov Petrovitch? No, I'm all right, Yakov Petrovitch, our hero muttered in a submissive voice. No, this won't do, Yakov Petrovitch. I beg you, I humbly beg you to wait with us. Make him welcome and bring him in, they say, Yakov Petrovitch. No, Yakov Petrovitch, you see, I'd better, I had better go home, Yakov Petrovitch, said our hero, burning at a slow fire and freezing at the same time with shame and terror. No, 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 whispered the loathsome person. No, 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 on no account. Come along, he said resolutely, and he dragged Mr. Golyadkin Sr. to the steps. Mr. Golyadkin Sr. did not want at all to go, but as everyone was looking at them, it would have been stupid to struggle and resist, so our hero went, though, indeed, one cannot say that he went, because he did not know in the least what was being done with him, though, after all, it made no difference. Before our hero had time to recover himself and come to his senses, he found himself in the drawing-room. He was pale, disheveled, harassed. With lusterless eyes, he scanned the crowd. Horror! The drawing-room, all the rooms, were full to overflowing— there were masses of people, a whole galaxy of ladies, and all were crowding round Mr. Golyadkin, all were pressing towards Mr. Golyadkin, all were squeezing Mr. Golyadkin, and he perceived clearly that they were all forcing him in one direction. Not towards the door was the thought that floated through Mr. Golyadkin's mind. They were, in fact, forcing him not towards the door, but Olsufi Ivanovitch's easy chair. On one side of the armchair stood Clara Olsufievna, pale, languid, melancholy, but gorgeously dressed. Mr. Golyadkin was particularly struck by a little white flower which rested on her superb hair. On the other side of the armchair stood Vladimir Semyonovitch, clad in black with his new order in his buttonhole. 
Mr. Golyadkin was led in, as we have described above, straight up to old Sufie Ivanovitch, on one side of him Mr. Golyadkin, Jr., who had assumed an air of great decorum and propriety, to the immense relief of our hero, while on the other side was Andrei Filipovitch, with a very solemn expression on his face. "'What can it mean?' Mr. Golyadkin wondered. When he saw that he was being led to Olsufi Ivanovitch, an idea struck him like a flash of lightning. The thought of the intercepted letter darted through his brain. In great agony our hero stood before Olsufi Ivanovitch's chair. "'What will he say now?' he wondered to himself. "'Of course, it will be all above board now.' That is straightforward and, one may say, honorable. I shall say this is how it is, and so on. But what our hero apparently feared did not happen. Sufi Ivanovitch received Mr. Golyadkin very warmly, and though he did not hold out his hand to him, yet, as he gazed at our hero, he shook his grey and venerable head, shook it with an air of solemn melancholy, and yet of good will. So, at least, it seemed to Mr. Golyadkin. He even fancied that a tear glittered in Osufi Ivanovitch's lustreless eyes. He raised his eyes and saw that there seemed to be tears too on the eyelashes of Clara Osufievna, who was standing by, that there seemed to be something of the same sort even in the eyes of Vladimir Semyonovitch, that the unruffled and composed dignity of Andrei Filipovitch had the same significance as the general tearful sympathy, that even the young man who was so much like a civil counsellor seizing the opportunity was sobbing bitterly though perhaps this was only all Mr. Golyadkin's fancy because he was so much moved himself and distinctly felt the hot tears running down his cold cheeks, feeling reconciled with mankind and his destiny, and filled with love at the moment not only for Osufi Ivanovitch, not only for the whole party collected there, but even for his noxious twin, who seemed now to be by no means noxious and not even to be his twin at all, but a person very agreeable in himself and in no way connected with him, our hero, in a voice broken with sobs, tried to express his feelings to Ilsufi Ivanovitch, but was too much overcome by all that he had gone through, and could not utter a word. He could only, with an expressive gesture, point meekly to his heart. At last, probably to spare the feelings of the old man, Andrei Filipovitch led Mr. Golyadkin a little away, though he seemed to leave him free to do as he liked, smiling, muttering something to himself, somewhat bewildered, and yet almost completely reconciled with fate and his fellow-creatures, our hero began to make his way through the crowd of guests. Everyone made way for him, everyone looked at him with a strange curiosity and with mysterious, unaccountable sympathy. Our hero went into another room, he met with the same attention everywhere. He was vaguely conscious of the whole crowd closely following him, noting every step he took, talking in undertones among themselves of something very important, shaking their heads, arguing and discussing in whispers. Mr. Golyadkin wanted very much to know what they were discussing in whispers. Looking round, he saw near him Mr. Golyadkin, Jr. Feeling an overwhelming impulse to seize his hand and draw him aside, Mr. Golyadkin begged the other Yakov Petrovitch most particularly to cooperate with him in all his future undertakings, and not to abandon him at a critical moment. Mr. Golyadkin, Jr. nodded his head gravely and warmly pressed the hand of Mr. Golyadkin, Sr. Our hero's heart was quivering with the intensity of his emotion. He was gasping for breath. However, he felt so oppressed, so oppressed, he felt that all those eyes fastened upon him were oppressing and dominating him. Mr. Golyadkin caught a glimpse of the counselor who wore a wig. 
the latter was looking at him with a stern searching eye not in the least softened by the general sympathy our hero made up his mind to go straight up to him in order to smile at him and have an immediate explanation but this somehow did not come off for one instant mr golyadkin became almost unconscious almost lost all memory all feeling when he came to himself again he noticed that he was the centre of a large ring formed by the rest of the party round him suddenly mr golyadkin's name was called from the other room the shout was at once taken up by the whole crowd all was noise and excitement all rushed to the door of the first room almost carrying our hero along with them in the crush the hard-hearted counsellor in the wig was side by side with mr golyadkin and taking our hero by the hand he made him sit down beside him opposite old sufi ivanovitch at some distance from the latter however everyone in the room sat down the guests were arranged in rows round mr golyadkin and old sufi ivanovitch everything was hushed everyone preserved a solemn silence everyone was watching old sufi ivanovitch evidently expecting something out of the ordinary mr golyadkin noticed that beside old sufi ivanovitch's chair and directly facing the counsellor sat mr golyadkin jr with andrei filopovitch the silence was prolonged they were evidently expecting something just as it is in a family when someone is setting off on a far journey we've only to stand up and pray now thought our hero suddenly there was a general stir which interrupted mr golyadkin's reflections something they had long been waiting for happened he is coming he is coming passed from one to another in the crowd who is that that is coming floated through mr golyadkin's mind and he shuddered at a strange sensation high time too said the counsellor looking intently at andrei filopovitch andrei filopovitch for his part glanced at olsufi ivanovitch olsufi ivanovitch gravely and solemnly nodded his head let us stand up said the counsellor and he made mr golyadkin get up all rose to their feet then the counsellor took mr golyadkin senior by the hand and andrei filopovitch took mr golyadkin junior and in this way the two precisely similar persons were conducted through the expectant crowd surrounding them our hero looked about him in perplexity but he was at once checked and his attention was called to mr golyadkin junior who was holding out his hand to him they want to reconcile us thought our hero and with emotion he held out his hand to mr golyadkin junior and then then bent his head forwards towards him the other mr golyadkin did the same at this point it seemed to mr golyadkin senior that his perfidious friend was smiling that he gave a sly hurried wink to the crowd of onlookers and that there was something sinister in the face of the worthless mr golyadkin jr that he even made a grimace at the moment of his judas kiss there was a ringing in mr golyadkin's ears and a darkness before his eyes it seemed to him that an infinite multitude an unending series of precisely similar golyadkins were noisily bursting in at every door of the room but it was too late the resounding treacherous kiss was over and then quite an unexpected event occurred the door opened noisily and in the doorway stood a man the very sight of whom sent a chill to mr golyadkin's heart he stood rooted to the spot a cry of horror died away in his choking throat yet mr golyadkin knew it all beforehand and had had a presentiment of something of the sort for a long time the new arrival went up to mr golyadkin gravely and solemnly mr golyadkin knew this personage very well he had seen him before he had seen him very often he had seen him that day 
This personage was a tall, thick-set man in a black dress coat with a good-sized cross on his breast, and was possessed of thick, very black whiskers. Nothing was lacking but the cigar in his mouth to complete the picture. Yet this person's eyes, as we have mentioned already, sent a chill to the very heart of Mr. Goliadkin. With a grave and solemn air, this terrible man approached the pitiable hero of our story. Our hero held out his hand to him. The stranger took his hand and drew him along with him. With a crushed and desperate air, our hero looked about him. It's, it's Christian Ivanovich Rutenspitz, doctor of medicine and surgery, your old acquaintance, Yakov Petrovich, a detestable voice whispered in Mr. Golyadkin's ear. He looked round. It was Mr. Golyadkin's twin, so revolting in the despicable meanness of his soul. A malicious, indecent joy shone on his countenance. He was rubbing his hands with rapture. He was turning his head from side to side in ecstasy. He was fawning round everyone in delight and seemed ready to dance with glee. At last he pranced forward, took a candle from one of the servants, and walked in front, showing the way to Mr. Golyadkin and Krestyan Ivanovich. Mr. Golyadkin heard the whole party in the drawing-room rush out after him, crowding and squeezing one another and all beginning to repeat after Mr. Golyadkin himself. It's all right, don't be afraid, Yakov Petrovich. This is your old friend and acquaintance, you know, Krestyan Ivanovich Rutenspitz. At last they came out on the brightly lighted stairs. There was a crowd of people on the stairs, too. The front door was thrown open noisily, and Mr. Golyadkin found himself on the steps together with Krestyan Ivanovich. At the entrance stood a carriage with four horses that were snorting with impatience. The malignant Mr. Golyadkin, Jr., in three bounds, flew down the stairs and opened the carriage door himself. Christian Ivanovich, with an impressive gesture, asked Mr. Golyadkin to get in. There was no need of the impressive gesture, however. There was plenty of people to help him in. Faint with horror, Mr. Golyadkin looked back. The whole of the brightly lighted staircase was crowded with people, inquisitive eyes, were looking at him from all sides, while Sufi Ivanovich himself was sitting in his easy chair on the top landing and watching all that took place with deep interest. Everyone was waiting. A murmur of impatience passed through the crowd when Mr. Golyadkin looked back. I hope I have done nothing, nothing reprehensible or that can call for severity and general attention in regard to my official relations, our hero brought out in desperation. A clamor of talk rose all around him. All were shaking their heads. Tears started from Mr. Golyadkin's eyes. In that case, I'm ready. I have full confidence, and I entrust my fate to Krestyan Ivanovich. No sooner had Mr. Golyadkin declared that he entrusted his fate to Krestyan Ivanovich than a dreadful, deafening shout of joy came from all surrounding him and was repeated in a sinister echo through the whole of the waiting crowd. Then Krestyan Ivanovich on the one side and Andrei Filopovich on the other helped Mr. Golyadkin into the carriage. His double, in his usual nasty way, was helping him to get in from behind. The unhappy Mr. Golyadkin Sr. took his last look on all and everything, and, shivering like a kitten that has been drenched with cold water, if the comparison may be permitted, got into the carriage. Krestyan Ivanovich followed him in immediately. The carriage door was slammed. There was a swish of the whip on the horses' backs. The horses started off. The crowd dashed after Mr. Golyadkin. The shrill, furious shouts of his enemies pursued him by way of good wishes for his journey. 
for some time several persons were still running by the carriage that bore away mr golyadkin but by degrees they were left behind till at last they had all disappeared mr golyadkin's unworthy twin kept up longer than any one with his hands in the trouser pockets of his green uniform he ran on with a satisfied air skipping first to one and then to the other side of the carriage sometimes catching hold of the window frame and hanging on by it poking his head in at the window and throwing farewell kisses to mr golyadkin but he began to get tired he was less and less often to be seen and at last vanished altogether there was a dull ache in mr golyadkin's heart a hot rush of blood set mr golyadkin's head throbbing he felt stifled he longed to unbutton himself to bare his breast to cover it with snow and pour cold water on it he sank at last into forgetfulness when he came to himself he saw that the horses were taking him along an unfamiliar road there were dark patches of copse on each side of it it was desolate and deserted suddenly he almost swooned two fiery eyes were staring at him in the darkness and those two eyes were glittering with malignant hellish glee that's not krestyan ivanovitch who is it or is it he it is it is krestyan ivanovitch but not the old krestyan ivanovitch it's another krestyan ivanovitch it's a terrible krestyan ivanovitch krestyan ivanovitch i-i believe i'm all right krestyan ivanovitch our hero was beginning timidly in a trembling voice hoping by his meekness and submission to soften the terrible krestyan ivanovitch a little you get free quarters wood with light and service the which you do not deserve krestyan ivanovitch's answer rang out stern and terrible as a judge's sentence our hero shrieked and clutched his head in his hands alas for a long while he had been haunted by a presentiment of this End of chapter 13 Recording by Magda Wilde End of the Double, a Petersburg poem by Fyodor Dostoevsky Translated by Constance Garnett